Hello again, biathlon fans, and welcome to Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. A special thanks to our Heartbeat sponsors. First of all, Aaron's, the king of snow. Maloya, outfitting the U.S. biathlon team. And Paul Smith's College, offering education and sport training in the heart of New York's Olympic region. It's been a busy season for Heartbeat. Did you catch our last episode on the new ban on fluorocarbons? Lots of comments on that one as U.S. biathlon team leader Fetty Fontana gives the history and the next steps as both IBU and FIS have now banned fluoros in wax starting this season. Check it out on your favorite podcast platform. We've had some informative interviews in our four seasons of Heartbeat, but today's episode is one of my favorites. Three years ago, we caught up with national team member Maddie Fanoff on the first season of Heartbeat. Maddie told her story of moving from South Carolina to Old Forge, New York when she was young and how she found biathlon. And she also talked through her career that featured some strong athletic successes, but also the depths of depression. Today, a joyful Maddie Fanoff talks about working her way through mental health challenges, her somewhat unexpected retirement from the team, and the coaching opportunity that quickly followed. Now heading into her third season as the head biathlon coach for the New York Ski Education Foundation in her home of Lake Placid, Fanoff is advancing her career knowledge as part of an international biathlon union program, one of 20 coaches from 19 nations participating in a series of global workshops. She has also earned her IBU Level 1 and Level 2 official certification as well as referee. And she's also emerging as an advocate for women in coaching as the leader of one of the country's most noted biathlon programs in Lake Placid. From the exhilaration of helping bring smiles to athletes in remote Alaskan villages above the Arctic Circle to experiencing the feeling of accomplishment in the eyes of her athletes in Lake Placid, Maddie Fanoff has found a joyful place for herself in biathlon, and she loves it. Now let's join Maddie Fanoff from her home in Lake Placid on this episode of Heartbeat. Maddie Fanoff, thanks for joining us on Heartbeat. Looks like a nice day behind you in the window. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's okay here in Lake Placid so far. Can't complain. And you've been you've been living. We're going to talk about your background, but uh, you've been living in Lake Placid for a while. The Olympic Village, uh, nice place to live if you're interested in sport. Absolutely, you can't get much better than this. What's your fall been like there? Right now, it's been a little slower than slower than the summer, which is nice. So get a little bit of a breather. Um, we did have some snowfall recently, which got us all itching for the winter season to come, but it all melted at the moment. So we're kind of waiting for some some more snow before Thanksgiving. Yeah, that typical November uh, in, in, the, in the Adirondacks. So uh, let's so uh, we, we had you on the podcast a couple of years ago, and I really appreciated that opportunity to learn more about you. Uh, for folks that maybe missed that or just getting to know you, give us a little 411 on your background and how you eventually made your way to the Adirondacks and got into biathlon. I moved to the Adirondacks when I was eight. My family, we spent the first chunk of my life down in South Carolina, so complete opposite of the Northeast. I began cross-country skiing at a young age, got into biathlon with the Polar Bear Biathlon Club um, when I was 15. That was my first introduction, and I quickly fell in love with the sport and kept getting after it and trying to make Junior Worlds and all of those youth and junior type races. And then I lived up in Fort Kent, Maine briefly with the former Maine Winter Sports Center, trained up there and 
quickly gained more skill in the sport and was recognized by the national team after I had placed fourth at my first youth junior world championships, which were also in Maine at Presque Isle. Um, so I was on the national team uh, probably eight eight or 10 years or so, um, raced internationally on the IBU Cup circuit, multiple youth junior world championships, uh, world cups, world championships, and I was on the 2018 Olympic team. Let's go back to the Polar Bear Club. Tell, tell me about that. Yeah, the Polar Bear Club, it's a very tight-knit community in Old Forge. Um, when I first moved there and was growing up, I just have this memory of the whole town being very supportive of the ski culture. And we had a school bus that would take kids directly from school straight to the mountain to go alpine skiing or cross-country skiing. There's a saying within the club, once you're a polar bear, you're always a polar bear. So I keep that true to my heart. I love the community in Old Forge and I love the polar bear ski club and the biathlon program there. I mean, I grew up just being introduced to it once a week within the ski club. Carl Klosner was in charge back then, and he still is. And he's very dedicated to the club, and we wouldn't be—I wouldn't be where I am without his support. And it's a small, small club, but a lot of passion and love there. Growing up as an athlete, I don't know if you had any thoughts that ultimately you would move into coaching, but you did a few years ago, moving into your third season now, heading the uh, program at NICEF. Uh, but what was the motivation for you after you retired as an athlete to move into coaching? Yeah, it's funny because I remember having a, a thought of, oh, I'm not interested in coaching. Like when I when I would think on my career as an athlete and when I would retire, kind of what I wanted to do with my life, my first thought wasn't coaching. I very much was kind of like, oh, I think that's something that I don't want to do, actually. <laughs> but I think my first taste with kind of coaching a little bit, I would help the Polar Bear Ski Club a couple of times because my mom is the coach for the Bill Coke program there. And when I was an athlete, I would go down and help with some sessions now and then during the holidays. And then my first real taste of kind of more coaching was I did a Nana Nordic program. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's basically a volunteer-based program to go up to rural communities in Alaska and bring like bring a skiing program to them for a week or so. Um, so that was my first real taste, and I loved it. I loved working with those kids. It was so fun and different. And so when I was retiring or kind of in that in-between limbo of not quite sure what I wanted to do with racing or moving on, I was still here in Lake Placid, and the former head coach, Shane McDowell, was looking for some extra support with the biathlon program. And so since I was around and I wasn't fully training, but I also wasn't working, I figured I would just help and kind of see if I liked it. And then that just kind of turned into me staying with the club and being their first true head biathlon coach. And I've been loving it ever since. Let's talk more about that program to Alaska. I read about uh, your trip up there. I think that was a maybe about three seasons ago, you went up to the Juneau area. How pivotal was that in kind of experiencing that giving back to kids and particularly in a state where where skiing is such a big thing? But how pivotal was that trip for you in kind of saying, hey, this is something I want to do? Yeah. So I actually 
There were two different trips that I've done. So I have gone to, I was up in Norvik, which is kind of near Kotzebue, which is north of the Arctic Circle. And that was probably about four or so years ago. And that was with Nana Nordic Ski Coup. And that was when we visited these rural communities and um, brought skiing there. Um, the other trip I had done was in Juneau, and that was about three seasons ago. And that was different. Basically, the the club there in Juneau, since they're remote enough where they they don't have road access to other towns, um, they have to fly to their ski races and that kind of stuff. They like to bring in guest coaches every season. And I got asked to come join for a weekend just to kind of give my own expertise and bring in a fresh face and new ideas for the kids. And that was really fun. I really enjoyed the Juno community up there. And I think they're doing a great job with the resources that they have. And I have heard that they're bringing biathlon there, which is very exciting. Um, and I think when I was there, they they all were in the talks of bringing biathlon and they seemed very excited about the sport. And so it will be interesting to kind of see how it grows in their community. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I know you are definitely a disciple of biathlon as you go around the country. And we're going to, we're going to talk later uh, about some of the introductory programs you're involved with now. Let's talk about your day-to-day role. I know that there probably is no such thing as a day-to-day uh, routine, but as you get into the season, kind of take us through the things that you're doing uh, in your role with uh, NICEF. Yeah, so... NICEF, it's unique because it's kind of like an elite program that you can you can join. A lot of our kids are also in public school and skiing with their local high school team. And we also work really closely with Northwood School, which is a private high school here in Lake Placid. Basically, they, they have a Nordic program with their school, but they use the NICEF coaches to coach the athletes. And so basically, I kind of and working with a wide range of athletes because we also have a, a relationship with Paul Smith's college. So I'm kind of doing everything. I feel like I work with all ages, which is really fun for me, but I would say my kind of day-to-day routine, um, it varies obviously between summer and winter, but let's just say um, it's the winter coming up. So I'll talk about that with the Northwood athletes. They have the opportunity to train in the mornings and then they do their high school in the afternoons into the early evening. And so I'm usually at the venue in the morning with those athletes training them. Um, and that can just be, you know, doing some slow fire shooting at the beginning of the session and then going into their ski session with combos. And then middle of the day, I kind of have a break from in-person sessions. And so that time is dedicated to fueling myself and then also just doing some computer work and any other sort of like meetings that I might have. And then the afternoon is for those public school athletes. Um, so they get out of school around 2.30 or 3. And then we meet directly after school and kind of do the same sort of workout that the Northwood athletes may have done, but just later in the afternoon with a different group of kids, basically. And the Paul Smith's college athletes just kind of um, fit in there we either work with them on the same days or we have a separate day specifically for the college group. Maddie, looking at the younger kids, uh, and I know your focus is biathlon, at what age are you generally getting the younger athletes into the sport of biathlon, teaching them to shoot and getting them to understand the idiosyncrasies of those two uniquely different activities that comprise biathlon? So NICEF also has a program called the Devo program, which is basically the Bill Koch League. Um, so anyone 12, 13 and under. In the past, we would have it as an add-on 
so you could pay for the cross country program and then additionally biathlon. But I kind of argued that we should combine the two and not force kids to kind of choose between cross country or biathlon at that young of an age. So now it's integrated with our cross country program. And so the kids obviously aren't forced to learn how to shoot air rifles, but they're given the opportunity and the encouragement to at least give it a try. So that age group is between like seven and 12. And so with that group, I'm really just kind of introducing them to the sport teaching them about rifle safety, giving them the chance to get familiar with the rifle and familiar with shooting targets. And once they get slightly older in that kind of 10 to 12 age range is when they usually get a little bit more excited and kind of want to learn more about breathing and trigger and that kind of stuff. And so it's really fun. We have a wide range of abilities and kids but once they get older in that 12 range is when I kind of shift them into the 22 if they're if they're really dedicated about biathlon and want to continue pursuing it. Maddie, I love the concept of you rolling biathlon and cross country into one program to give all kids the opportunity. Any counsel that you would give to other club programs around the country as to why that's so important for the sport? Yeah, I mean, I just feel like sometimes in the U.S., especially with other sports where athletes tend to peak at a younger age, like gymnastics, for instance. Um, A lot of parents just love to push only one sport on their kid and kind of are pushing them to this excellence at a young age. And I think that is kind of a recipe for disaster in the sense of burnout. A lot of times, maybe they'll find success, but then they'll kind of have some resentment towards that sport and not want to come back to it at an older age. I mean, I grew up doing everything. I played soccer, cross co- ran cross country, did biathlon, cross country skiing, track, um, music, all that kind of stuff. And so I think integrating biathlon within the already growing cross country program is important because you're not taking those kids away from cross country because obviously we need fast skiers to be good biathletes. Um, But it's really just kind of sprinkling biathlon within those already created programs so that the kids can just, you know, at least have their eyes open to the other possibilities within the Nordic sports community. So similar to the, to ski jumping, for instance, you could do the same thing with ski jumping, um, have it kind of integrated in the already created cross country program so that the kids can learn how to ski jump on really small jumps and see if that's something that they're interested in. Um, and same with biathlon. Given that you are all in these programs together with ski jumping, Nordic combined cross country biathlon, are you and the other coaches talking strategically about this to try to build more well-rounded athletes and, and, and give the younger kids more of an opportunity to explore? I mean, there's very few places like Lake Placid where you could really do this and have such a potpourri of opportunity. Yeah. I think the conversation has totally shifted in the last couple of years since I, I'm not 100% sure how it was navigated before I came on a few years ago, but since I've been involved, it seems like myself and the staff that I work with are very much on the same page on, okay, we have this group of athletes who are interested in cross-country skiing, ski jumping, biathlon. How can we just create one cohesive group where they're all working together, they're all growing up together, they're supporting each other Um, They're trying new things. Yeah, our conversations have very much been on how to unify our program as a whole and not create these separate pockets of the sport when we're all kind of striving for the same thing. We want athletes to be involved in Nordic skiing and 
all of these sports have a common ground. Biathlon has Nordic skiing involved. Nordic combined has Nordic skiing involved. Obviously, cross country has Nordic skiing. Um, so we're kind of trying to figure out how we can get all these athletes kind of all in the same bubble and not feel like their sport is significantly different, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. So Lake Placid has this amazing Olympic heritage going back, of course, to the 1980 Games. And the facility usage over time has been significant. And now with the World University Games a year ago, these tremendous upgrades in the venues, you've been around Lake Placid for a little bit. It seems that the sports are really kind of showing a new freshness and vibrancy. Talk about the the venue upgrades and how that's really helping your program there. It's been really awesome to see because I've been coming up to Lake Placid since I was eight years old, so for about 20 years. Um, so I, I remember, you know, racing at the old 1980 venue at Mount Van Hovenberg. And then once I was training with the national team, mostly using the roller ski loop at the ski jumping facilities, um, and now having the brand new Mount Van Hovenberg roller ski loop with 30 point range is incredible. And yeah, it's really awesome to see that if you Google old Olympic venues, there's so many around the globe that are just crumbling and aren't being used anymore. And I think there was a brief period of time where Lake Placid honestly could have gone that direction. Um, I think there was a moment, as we know, where they had the opportunity to host World Cups, but they kind of just went the other direction. And so I think they kind of realized finally, which is awesome, that, oh, we can still be a world-class venue and invite athletes from all over the world to come see Lake Placid and experience this former Olympic venue. Um, why not put the money into upgrading these facilities and and making it an amazing world stage, but also an amazing facility for not only our local athletes here in Lake Placid to use, but national team athletes and also different national teams from all over the world. So it is truly, really awesome to see. And I'm obviously very personally happy to have a program that gets to use the facilities um, every every day. So you're seeing a, like parents of kids and kids, uh, there's a kind of a newfound enthusiasm now in Lake Placid? Yeah, totally. And I think the World University Games also helped that because it was one of the first times, at least in my memory, of having truly that many different sports happening in Lake Placid at the same time. Obviously, they've had usually bobsled and, and luge and skeleton has a World Cup here um, at the Van Ho Sliding Center most winters. But they had the Ski Jumping World Cup here as well last year for the first time, I think, either ever or in a, many years. Um, long time. Yeah, long time. And so I think having that World Cup and then World University Games and really using all of the different facilities here in Lake Placid and in the surrounding areas really made a huge difference and kind of opened the eyes to the local community on, oh, right, like we do have these amazing facilities that we can send our kids to and become great athletes one day. So yeah, I think those events really help the community and kind of open the eyes to those athletes of like, oh yeah, I I could be a great biathlete or a great ski jumper or bobsled athlete or whatever it is that they hope and dream. 
I, I want to shift gears a little bit and uh, talk about mental health in sport, which is something that I think, fortunately, more and more people are starting to recognize that it's something that really has to be managed to to support athletes. First off, can you tell your story coming out of Pyeongchang and how this impacted you as an athlete? And then we'll segue into you as a coach and watching for this in kids today. But walk us through your situation that occurred after Pyeongchang. For anyone who isn't uh, isn't aware of what my story is with the Olympics, I was named as the alternate for U.S. biathlon in 2018 for the Olympics in Pyeongchang. And so I fully went into it not expecting to race. I was basically the backup in case somebody else got sick or injured. And I was performing pretty well during that week. So the coaches decided last minute, oh, let's put you in the individual race. We want to see you have an opportunity to race here at the Olympics. I was beyond excited, was telling all my friends and family. And then the day of the race, I woke up with a slightly scratchy throat. And if you don't know, World Cup athletes are very, very in tune with their body. And so the tiniest scratch of a throat or tickle in the throat that kind of throws your radar off like, oh, no, my body's fighting something. I need to be aware of that. And so I just started chugging tea and trying to stay healthy for the race that evening, but then the race got delayed till the next day. And so since that got delayed, I spoke with my doctor and they were like, well, we have the resources. Let's, let's just see and make sure it's nothing serious. And then it turned out that I had strep. And so, uh, it was serious. They, the coaches decided to take me out of the race. I was devastated and hurt and felt like I, I could have still raced, but that was their decision. And so during that I also ended up getting a flu virus on top of strep. And so I was like horribly sick and laid up in bed for the rest of the time at the village. Um, So it was devastating for me. I didn't really notice it while I was there, but I was definitely falling into like a deep depression. And when I flew home, I, I didn't continue the season that year because I was just sick and the coaches preferred that I just went home and rested and, and just took care of myself. So I flew home. And I just have a memory of me just kind of like being in my bed and and not wanting to see anyone. And so that was kind of my first real taste of like true depression um, where I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to talk to anybody. It was really, really difficult for me because like Old Forge is so supportive and they love me and I love them. And I knew that I needed to give back and like kind of have a party for the town. So I have a memory of talking to my parents, just like, okay, I know we have this party that I planned. I just don't know how I'm going to make it through without crying. Like I can't, I can't imagine talking about the Olympics without sobbing right now. So I had to like figure out a game plan for the party, (laughs) which like thinking back on it, like during the moment I was like, oh, this is so normal. (laughs) But now that I'm like, like so much better. I'm like, that was so not normal. (laughs) And it's like, obviously it's okay. Like I was hurting and my mental health was in shambles. (laughs) Um, but like, I think, and it, it took me a long time to kind of realize that I needed like more professional help and I couldn't get through it by myself, but basically it took about a year and a year went by and I was like, Oh, I'm like still crying myself to sleep over what happened at the Olympics. Like maybe I should go talk to somebody like a therapist. Um, so I started my therapy journey. I 
overcame at least like we really targeted just the Olympic experience for me and how much trauma there was around that and me putting so much blame on myself for getting sick and that kind of stuff. So once I went through that, I felt so much better. I could get through training. And then I had one of my my best seasons on the team. Uh, and then it honestly came to a surprise for me. Like I had a really amazing season. I performed the best that I had in many years. Um, and I started the following training season, like the pre-Olympic season with the team out in Bend, had an amazing training camp. And then I came home and I just my body just like kind of shut down. Like I couldn't get out of bed. I had no interest in training. I like couldn't train. And it was my first, like, I would say it was worse than how I felt after the Olympics. Like I physically felt like I could not move out of my bed. And I was like, okay, this is a problem. (laughs) I need to figure this out. And like, thankfully the, the coaches like Armin was so supportive of my mental health and did anything he could to help me and reassured me that it was okay that I was missing sessions. We would figure it out. Like I needed to work on my own health before coming back to the team. And so I was really thankful for him and Lowell and the whole crew that were just like, you do what you need to do. We're going to be here for you. Like just keep us in the loop. We're not going to try to pressure you. Um, And so, yeah, that summer I, I really spent a majority of it trying to just figure my own life out and like how to feel better. <laughs> and when it came down to it, I just needed to take a break. And so my my intention was just to take a break from the season because I, I truly felt like the pressure internally of the Olympics coming up again that winter. And I don't even think like I think it was very subconscious. Like I personally wasn't thinking that I was going to be affected by the Olympic season again. I was kind of like oh, I'm like fully devoted to training and like I'm going to make the team and I'm not going to be an alternate this time. Like I was like really just excited to like work my ass off. But I think subconsciously there was still some trauma left in there and and my body was kind of screaming at me that we needed to just stop and take a break. And it was like, I don't want to do this again. I (laughs) went to therapy again, got on antidepressants and then... I unexpectedly quit biathlon and announced my retirement. And then it's funny, it might sound silly and some people don't believe in like spirituality or anything, but I truly felt like the universe was kind of giving me all the signs that it was time for me to be done. And it just kind of handed me this coaching opportunity at the perfect time. Because as soon as I announced that I was retiring, like a week later, the head coach with NICEF stepped away and they were like really needing somebody to take over the biathlon position. And they offered me the job like immediately. And so it was kind of like a really weird string of events, but it all worked out great. Obviously everything happens for a reason. And I know I'm going on and on, but you're, you also mentioned like, how do I see, or like, how do I use my own mental health um, experience with my athletes? And I think the biggest thing that I've learned just through my experience of having many different coaches throughout my life and having my own experience, it's really important to value athletes as humans first and not just, you know, result producing machines. And so I truly try to come to my own athletes with respect and honesty and openness. And I'm always the first to tell them like, Hey, like I'm an open book. If you ever have any questions, I'm happy to talk to you. Like, I'm sure I've been through the ringer. Like I've been through everything. I definitely am. I try to be a very open coach and just 
like someone that they can always kind of rely on. But yeah, it, it definitely can be kind of hard to notice signs or like sometimes like every person is different and if they're struggling you might not really notice and so it's kind of like just being a consistent person for that athlete or or you know this could be anyone in your life a friend um co-worker athlete that you're working with just being a, a consistent person where they can they know they can trust you and they know they can talk to you at any time I think is kind of like the biggest the biggest thing you can do really One of the things you said here that really stood out to me was to treat people or treat athletes first as humans, not as athletes, to treat them as humans. I, I know that we as a society probably still have a long ways to go. But over the last few years, there have been, I think, some eye-opening things for fans, be that Michaela Schifrin, Simone Biles, there's countless other examples. Do you have a sense that society as a whole, that sport fandom, is starting to look at athletes more first as humans and secondly as athletes and maybe cutting them a break when they don't perform up to the standards that we as fans might expect? Yeah, I think... There's been a huge shift in the last four plus years or so. I think, um, especially like not only with sports and athletes, but just like mental health in general. I think there's been a huge shift, which has been amazing because before I just felt like, and even with my own experience, it felt like athletes were these superhumans who could go through anything and were expected to go through anything and still perform. And it was kind of like, Especially, I mean, maybe less so with biathlon. I'm thinking, you know, people who, like in the U.S., for instance, football and baseball and hockey, those kinds of sports, basketball, are way more huge. And I think there's way more of a fan base with those. And I think it's really easy to kind of fans have this, like, ownership over an athlete in a sense of, like, oh, well, I root for them and they need to perform for me because I'm passionate about this sport or whatever it is. And so I think in the past, maybe there wasn't as much compassion for athletes and it was kind of just expected that they were supposed to do their job and not talk about anything else do anything else all they were all they were meant to be were performers and I think there's been a major shift and thankfully it's because of these huge stars like Simone Biles Michaela Schifrin um that tennis player Naomi is that her name yeah Osaka yeah yeah like all those and, you know, they're females, which is awesome. Um, I'm sure there's some male, like Michael Phelps, I know, was a huge advocate for mental health as well. So I think there has been a major shift and it's really awesome to see. Um, and I hope that that just continues and it doesn't go back to what it used to be like. <laughs> One final question on this topic. What advice would you have for parents of young athletes in this area? <sighs> That's a hard question because I just remember when I was in high school, and maybe it's different now. I feel like when I was in high school and obviously I struggled in high school as well. The last thing I wanted to do is tell my parents anything (laughs) about what I was going through. Maybe that was just my own personal relationship because I have a, a much better relationship with them now and I tell them everything. But I think as a parent, it's mostly important just to keep an extra eye in a sense of like, you don't need to constantly always ask your child, like, how are you doing? How are you doing? But I think it's important just to like notice their patterns. And if something seems a little off, like just notice it at first and maybe ask them or at least give them the opportunity to be like, hey, like you do know that my door is always open. I'm happy to talk to you about anything. And if I'm not the person you want to talk to, 
like I'm totally happy to help you find someone else that you want to talk to. Like I think that's the main thing is just not expecting your child to want to necessarily open up to to you because they might not feel totally comfortable. But if you notice something, at least give them the resources to know that it's okay to talk to somebody else, for instance. Maddie, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back on Heartbeat. In each episode, Heartbeat brings you insightful stories about one of the most exhilarating of all Olympic sports. U.S. Biathlon thanks each of its sponsors that help us bring you each and every episode of the Heartbeat podcast. Maloya is the official apparel provider of U.S. Biathlon. Thanks to Maloya, our team is outfitted in high-quality, beautiful apparel and race gear. Not only does the U.S. Biathlon team stand out, but we race in comfortable, breathable suits that inspire confidence. Check it out at MaloyaClothing.com. As an official sponsor of U.S. Biathlon, Aarons is committed to supporting the growth of the sport in the USA. The so-called King of Snow is a global leader in snow removal equipment that keeps facilities and courses clear for training and competition. The Aarons Nordic Center in Brilliant, Wisconsin is an official U.S. Biathlon National Training Center, further proving Aarons' commitment to growing biathlon in America. You can learn more at AaronsNordic.com. As the official education partner of U.S. Biathlon, Paul Smith's College takes pride in the programs that it has established to offer athletes a college education and sports-specific training, all nestled in New York's Adirondacks. Its reputation and standing as a college aligns with U.S. Biathlon's goals to support collegiate biathletes as they strive for both academic and athletic success. From an outstanding trail network to its eight-point biathlon range, Paul Smith's College is a great environment for athletes who want a small college located in a sports-centric region. To learn more, go to paulsmithsbobcats.com. Now let's get back to this episode of Heartbeat. We're back with Maddie Fanoff on Heartbeat. And Maddie, you've you've actually, uh, three years into coaching, you've actually been traveling the world, uh, enhancing your education. Tell us a little bit about the International Biathlon Union's international coaching program that you've been involved with. And I, I should say one of only a handful of Americans who've ever done this. Yeah, I've had an amazing opportunity with the IBU. They have this pretty much brand new, I think this is only their second year having it. They call it the IBU Academy. And it's essentially a variety of course levels to educate coaches from all over the globe on kind of basically uniforming um, a sense of how to coach athletes or kind of what knowledge is needed to be a a good biathlon coach. And so they have um, a basic level, which is only like, I think a week long course. And that's kind of for young kids, like the Bill Koch age Then they have the first level course, which is what I'm in, and that is a year-long program, partially online curriculum and partially in-person. And the in-person sessions, we have three week-long sessions. And so the first week was in Hochfilz in Austria this early May. And then the second week we just completed um, last month in October in Östersund, Sweden, and then our final week will be in, I have no idea how to say the name. I think it's it's, it's somewhere in Poland. <laughs> um, it's uh, up in Poland. We'll do a week long there and that's where we'll get our certificates and we'll do our final exam or whatever for our first level course. 
Then they also have, I believe, second and third level. And so basically the second and third level are similar to the first level. I think the same sort of setup, like it's it's a year long, partially online, partially in person. But basically you're just learning more in depth on ski technique knowledge, training plan, creations, uh, nutrition, like all that kind of stuff. Anything that, that might have to do with biathlon and, and professional sports. So yeah, it's been an honor to be a part of the program. With the first level, they only choose 20 total participants from around the world. And so we have 20 coaches from 19 different countries. And that's just been a really awesome opportunity to not only learn from the instructors at each in-person session, but also from the other coaches and their own experiences with with their cultures and, and their backgrounds. I would assume that many of those other coaches are, such as yourself, former athletes. Is that the case? I would say, at least in my course, I think we have 20, and I would say maybe five of them are former athletes, at least former, like, like recent athletes or current. There's a couple that are still currently racing that are also in the course. Cool. Talk a little bit more about the the benefits that you get from just the interchange with coaches from all of these different nations. It's actually really interesting because I feel like obviously coming from a sport like biathlon and a lot of these these coaches having been involved in the sport when they were young or even recent years, we all kind of have a similar tie. Obviously, we all understand the sport. We all are in it for the same sort of reasons. We love love the sport. We're passionate about it. We're obviously coaching because we want to give back to the community and want to continue growing the sport for next generations. And so it's cool because we all kind of have this similar bond and we can kind of connect over that. And the other thing that I find really interesting is learning how coaching in different cultures is so different. Like, for instance, I would have never known that in Finland, for instance, this coach was saying that the athletes there are fully expected to kind of ask questions and probe like why they're doing a certain thing. But for athletes who are maybe more in um, like Ukraine or Moldova area, those kind of places, it's very much more like authoritarian type coaching. And they're not really expected to ask why they're doing a thing. They're just expected to follow what the coach informs. And so it's kind of interesting to be like, oh, yeah, like I come from this culture and it would be totally rude to ask the coach a question um, because that's how the culture is there. But in Finland, for instance, like it would be totally weird to just solely follow the coach without any questions at all. And so it's it's like been really interesting just to learn more about the culture behind different coaches and their backgrounds. Um, and obviously we're kind of all on the same page with like curriculum wise and like, oh yeah, ski technique should look this way and shooting technique is, is more like this. Um, but it's more like the philosophy behind coaching that kind of like the theory and stuff, which I find more interesting. Now, I think the philosophy is always evolving too. I mean, I look at in this country and uh, I'll just kind of pick one area, but the authoritarianism, if that's the word, uh, that, that that's becoming a little bit less in favor now than maybe it used to be. Yeah. And I would say, especially in the US, I think that we're leaning less towards authoritarian type coaching and more towards kind of like a more openness type coaching where we ask the athletes to answer, to kind of find the answers through their own experience and come with us with questions. 
I mean, I have a memory when I was a kid where it's like, oh, you just follow what the coach tells you. Like you don't really ask questions that much. Um, but I think as you get older and, and maybe the times are changing a little bit where at least in biathlon, a lot of the coaches that I work closely with are very much more in the realm of, you know, having the athletes ask questions, wanting them to understand why we're doing things a certain way, um, which also makes me as a coach want to expand my own knowledge so that when an athlete comes to me and asks like, oh, you said I need to put my elbow this direction. Like, why is that? And then I have to be like, oh, well, it's because of this instead of just being like, um, well, that's how I was taught. So that's how I'm teaching you. Um, so that's kind of a, another reason why I want to kind of expand my knowledge and education as much as I can. At the same time, you're also expanding your knowledge on sport officiating. I think you uh, have a level one, level two officials license now and a referee's license. Where, where do you stand with that? And how is, is that a byproduct of this, of this training? Yeah. So actually it was like a, I don't know if the word is pre product. <laughs> I, I did the official course. And so when I first got into coaching that first season, that following spring, I was like, okay, I'm definitely going to continue coaching. Originally, I, I only got my officials license partly because I knew that working with NICEF and being at Mount Van Hovenberg, I'm sure they would need volunteers and want support for future races. So I thought that'd be a great idea. And then also within US Biathlon, I believe there's different levels for clubs and you can become like silver or gold if you have a certain number of officials like within your club. So I partly did it for the club and then also for events happening in Lake Placid. And then I wasn't really planning or expecting to get my international referees license with the IBU, but Sarah Studebaker Hall reached out to me after the officials course and asked if I had any interest in studying for the exam. I think they normally ask at, or ask officials to have five years of officiating or something before they apply to be IRs, but she said since I have a history with athletics and and competing on the world stage, she was like, okay, I know you have the knowledge and you just did your officials exam. If you're interested, you can try it or attempt the test. And so I studied for it and I decided just to take the test. Not really sure what I, I, in my mind, I was like, what's the harm in having more tools on my tool belt sort of thing. I had no idea if I was going to, you know, keep coaching or it's just another path that's open for me. Um, so I did that and I passed, thankfully. Uh, so yeah, I technically am an L1, L2 uh, official and I have my IR license. I personally have not used either of those yet with any competitions because I've been so busy coaching. I was a little bummed because I had the opportunity to go out to Utah this coming winter for the World Cup to help with that event. Um, but it overlaps with one of my competitions here with my club that I have to attend. So There'll be future opportunities, I'm sure. <laughs> There'll be plenty. There'll be plenty. I, I want to talk about women in coaching, women in officiating. Uh, both U.S. Biathlon and also the IBU have great initiatives here to get more women involved in coaching, in officiating. Talk about that a little bit, what your experience has been, and encouragement that you can give to other women here in America to get involved as a coach, get involved as a race official. I'll say something very briefly. For When I was growing up and I was a kid in elementary school, and I first heard about biathlon, the club at the time was only kids that hunted and they were all boys. And I remember thinking, okay, so biathlon is for boys and it's for people who like hunting. That was my knowledge of biathlon. And uh, which is so wrong and not 
not what's what's accurate at all. Um, and so since then, obviously, I you know know it's not just for boys and not for just people who enjoy hunting. But as I got older and was competing more and more, and just kind of you know becoming a woman and an adult kind of looking around the world and and really truly realizing like what the patriarchy is and like how instilled it is in our society that men have these positions of power where women don't necessarily and in a sport like biathlon that's very male heavy you look around at the world cup and there's almost no women at the scopes as a coach there's maybe a couple um there's almost no women wax technicians out there you and even within the US Bathon like when I was on the team we didn't really have any women staff members on trips it was maybe the masseuse was it was a woman every now and then or like a physician like a doctor we had a team doctor who was a woman so kind of just opening my eyes to not only within biathlon but just the entire world and and how male dominated it is in these roles where people are making decisions like coaching or officiating. I just kind of became more interested in taking up more space and being a woman in those roles. Um, It feels really awesome, but also scary to be one of the only women like at the table. And I really, truly encourage more women to kind of take up more space and, and push the boundary into coaching or officiating and and being in spaces where men are, especially if you enjoy biathlon, like since we're talking about biathlon, if you enjoy biathlon, are passionate about the sport, are retiring and aren't quite sure if you want to get into coaching or not, like I think the best thing is just to try. Because for me, I think one of the reasons why I think I stuck with coaching after the first season was the amount of praise I got from parents and from athletes being like, I've never had a, a female coach and I've learned so much from you and I and you know so much about the sport and it's obvious that my athlete or like my kid is learning a lot from you. And so even just those little supportive phrases from people in the community, I, I don't think I realized it until now that I'm like, oh, I think that was a driving factor into why I stuck around because it's like, okay, there are so many men who know less than I do who are in these roles. Like, why shouldn't I be at the table and bringing my own perspective that I know is valuable and can also lead more women to be involved and hopefully grow in our sport. I think that was kind of long-winded and maybe it didn't make sense, but hopefully it did. <laughs> no, it makes it makes complete sense. I'm going to touch on it again in a minute, but uh, as, we, we, as we wrap up, and thank you so much for your time here today, Maddie, uh, I, I want to touch on the uh, U.S. Biathlon's new Try It Laser program that uh, John Fair is putting in place around the country. You're very involved with that. Tell us about that program and how it's going to help get more kids into the sport. Yeah. So U.S. Biathlon had applied for this grant through the IBU that's called, I believe, Biathlon for All. And basically, the IBU wants to double the amount of biathlon participants around the world. And so John Farah has been the main lead for this this program. And he was working on, I don't know if they had the grant last year or if it was just him trying to get more U.S. participants involved in biathlon, and then it delved into this biathlon for all program. But basically, we got granted, um, I believe, 10 laser rifles from the IBU. That increases our our own U.S. biathlon fleet to 20 total laser, laser rifles. And our goal is to promote biathlon 
all over the country, um, primarily in spaces that already have Nordic programs. We're really targeting, you know, big Nordic events. For instance, this winter we'll be at um, the Bill Koch Festival here in New England. We'll be at several different types of races out in Utah and the West. I believe we're sending some rifles up to Alaska. And so if you're listening and you are a volunteer, an official, a coach, um, anyone involved in Nordic skiing or biathlon in the country and are interested in bringing biathlon to your local community or ski club, please email tryit at usbiathlon.org, T-R-Y-I-T at usbiathlon.org. And that will go directly to me and John Farah. We can coordinate with you guys on sending some laser rifles to your community. We can also bring U.S. Biathlon support if needed. And we're basically just trying to get kids who are already involved in skiing the chance to try biathlon, get introduced to the sport, and then hopefully kind of get that little drop of excitement in their brain about potentially, you know, becoming more involved in biathlon in the future. We're not trying to steal athletes from cross-country skiing. We're simply just trying to get people educated on biathlon, more excited, and the opportunity to kind of shoot a laser rifle and kind of see what biathlon is all about. Maddie, thank you so much for your time. We're going to wrap it up with just a few simple, fun questions as we did a couple of years ago. Uh, we're moving from summer into winter, but what is your, what's your favorite summer outdoor activity in the Adirondacks? Um, I would say mountain biking. There are endless trails here to mountain bike, and it is very fun. What What's a big ride that you did this summer? Honestly, this summer I did not get on my mountain bike as much as I had wanted to, but there's a trailhead just down the road from my house called Craigwood, and they have a brand new flow trail there, which is very fun to bike on. I'm not hitting the major jumps by all means, um, but it's it's nice and flowy. Love those trails. How about a favorite winter activity outside of skiing and biathlon? It's funny because I don't know if I do anything in the winter that doesn't involve skiing or biathlon. Um, so I guess I would say watching different sports in the area. Like, for instance, I went to the Ski Jumping World Cup last year, which was amazing. Tons of Polish fans. Oh, isn't that amazing to see them come together? Yeah, it was incredible. Love that. Have you gone off one of the jumps yet? No. I don't know if I Maybe will. You, you should. You give it a <laughs> try. It's a little tiny, tiny, tiny one. <laughs> Looking back on your career as an athlete, what's, uh, what's an interesting positive memory that you have from your career as an athlete, be that an event, an experience, a pizza, whatever? Honestly, being at the World Championships in 2017 when Lowell won the gold medal and also Susan won silver, that was kind of like... Obviously, it had nothing to do with me necessarily, but it was such an amazing opportunity to be there and see the team just like fully excited for each other. And just like, I don't know, there was just so much energy and it was so cool to kind of see US Biathlon just like succeed at the highest level. So I think that was probably one of the most, from my memory, like a positive, exciting experience that I got to be a, a part of. That's a really good one. And that really ignited, a, I would say, that the current wave of interest is still playing off of that, yeah. that uh, those medals seven years ago. Yeah. Wow. Oh, wow. it's weird that it was seven years ago. That seems, that seems not I know, accurate. that's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> Are you still playing your musical instruments? I recently picked up a piano off the side of the road uh, this past summer, or last summer, maybe. Uh, so I am dabbling back in the piano, which I've, I've played since I was eight. 
Uh, so that's been very nostalgic and fun to get back into. So tell me about the physical aspect of picking the piano up off the side of the road. <laughs> uh, so it actually came from the former Cascade um, Ski Center down the road. Um, I don't know if anyone, if you are from the Adirondacks, it's a very historical ski area. Um, they were closing down and they had their piano in the parking lot with a free sign. And I drove by it probably three times just thinking like, man, there's a free piano right there. Like you can't come across, like it was a, it's a nice piano. And so I just briefly mentioned it to my boyfriend's parents and his parents were like, you need to go pick it up right now. <laughs> and so we got the tractor because it's only like, you know, if you're in the tractor, it's like a five minute drive down the road. <laughs> and so my boyfriend's dad got in the tractor. I got in my car. We met at the parking lot and we loaded it up into the track, like onto the tractor's like forks. And then he strapped it onto the tractor and drove it down the road back to our house. Uh, so it was definitely a, an ordeal, but it's safely back in our home. And I'm very happy to have a piece of the Cascade Ski Center in my house. Did you get it tuned? Not yet. <laughs> that doesn't matter too much. <laughs> no, that, that is just such a great story. Yeah. Um, last one, last question. Most satisfying moment as a coach? The most satisfying, I mean, there's so many satisfying moments. I feel like I can't just pick one, but I think in general, the most satisfying type of moment is when an athlete finally figures something out that, that we've been working on for a while. So maybe it's like a constant reminder to think about your trigger squeeze or changing a part of your, your shooting position. And they finally nailed it and like hit all their targets. And you can just see that they're like, so excited that they like figured it out and solved the problem. That's probably the most exciting and satisfying part of being a coach is just seeing the athletes improve and succeed. Yeah. I love that. Uh, just a final one. This is more a comment. Uh, Maddie, you seem like you found your real direction in the sport. Thanks. I really appreciate that. I, I also feel like I am doing what I love. Great. Maddie Fanoff, thanks for joining us on Heartbeat. Good luck this season with all your kids. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I so enjoyed catching up with Maddie Fanoff. She's a remarkable role model for women in the sport and also showcasing the joy that coaching can bring. And did you enjoy the little story about hauling that old piano into her home? Fun stuff. In our next episode of Heartbeat, we'll catch up with Margie Freed and recount her fairy tale season last year, transferring over from cross country and making a quick impact on the world biathlon scene. And head to your favorite podcast platform to catch past episodes of Heartbeat. Heartbeat is brought to you by U.S. Biathlon and its dedicated team of sponsors. A special thanks to Aaron's, the King of Snow, Maloya, outfitting the U.S. Biathlon team, and Paul Smith's College offering education and sport training in the heart of New York's Olympic region. And a shout out to all of the U.S. Biathlon sponsors, including Maloya, Aaron's, Paul Smith's College, Auto Aider, Lapua Ammunition, Rain, Pure Mountain Spring Water, and Polar Beverages. That's it for this episode of Heartbeat. If you can, give us a review or hit the favorite button so you can stay up to date on the latest episodes as we continue to tell the stories of the people behind U.S. Biathlon. I'm Tom Keller, your host for Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon podcast. We'll see you again soon.